Good morning. Okay, as we begin class this morning, we want to remember the uh, Foot family, Lisa and Jim, who have been long members of our class but moved to Florida a year or so ago. Uh, their nephew died yesterday suddenly after a bee sting. And the family is uh, really quite in shock about it. So we want to remember them in our prayers. Um, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and, and for the fact that uh, you have overcome death and that you have a plan to heal and restore your universe back to perfection where there will be no more pain and suffering. We do lift up the Foot family before you this morning and ask that you will comfort them in their time of grief. We ask that you will um, be with our class today as we study, that we will come to know you better. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're doing lesson number nine in the quarterly Biblical Missionaries, and the title is Peter and the Gentiles. And before we get into the lesson, I do want to follow up on a, what we closed on last week, because I left, uh, I think, a significant point unstated. We were talking last week at the very end of the class about Jesus healing the demoniac, and I gave a quotation from Ellen White where she described a uh, very selfish person going into little tantrums and rages where she didn't get her way as uh, being... Um, uh, under the influence of demons or, uh, during that time. And what I didn't get to discuss was that, uh, because this comes up a lot with my patients with mental illness, that mental illnesses such as bipolar, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and many other disorders are not problems with a faith or a demon problem. These are biological problems uh, with, uh, with neurotransmission, and there's a whole host of reasons why people have this. Sometimes autoimmune, sometimes genetic uh, uh, signaling, uh, g- genetic transmission issues. So uh, what we are promised now on earth by, uh, from God is that we get new character, new hearts and right spirits. We don't get new biology until the mortal puts on immortality and the corruption puts on incorruption. So I just want to make that distinction in case anybody was confused about what I was saying last week. All right, Sabbath lesson for this week, the memory text, it says, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Question, what does the text mean? I mean, this is a common text we've heard many, many times in our Christian journey. What does it mean? There's many common Christian phrases in this text. So let's just start with the first one. What, is, what does it mean to repent? What is repentance? Turn back from the direction you're going. Turn back from the direction you're going. I, 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 I could play with you a little bit. <laughs> Turn back from the direction you're going meaning what? For instance, David had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And then he repented. Did he turn back from her? No. He didn't turn back from her, but he turned back from the direction he was going. Right. So what do we mean? This is is what we have to to tease out. Because many people think turning back means turning away from a a, a behavior pattern. Thinking pattern. Ah, okay. Turning away, she says, from a thinking pattern. From a heart motive pattern. It's turning away from a fear and selfish motivation to put self first and exploit others. It's, it's turning away from that heart motive. That's what repentance is. Being, being sick with your own inherent frailties and, and, and weaknesses and wanting to be somebody better and different. Having a desire for that. I think that's what it is. And then opening the heart to experience that, that recreation within. So with that idea, repent. Turn away from this path of self-gratification, self-centeredness, whatever the behavior is. What does it mean to be baptized? It represents death to the old direction you were going and life to the new direction. 
But Christ's life is now in you instead of your own life. Okay, so she said, did everybody hear her? She said it represents death to the old life and, and going forward in a new life. And so when I said, what does it mean to be baptized? There was an assumption made that that word means a ritual being dunked in water that represents something else. That's, that's, people assume that's what, what it means. And it, and it certainly, that's a legitimate meaning for the word. Is that, is that what it means in the context? Does being baptized in the name of Jesus mean going through a ritual? Let me put it this way. Can a person be baptized in the name of Jesus and not really have been baptized? Yeah. Going through the ritual. So what does it really mean to be baptized? It says baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're coming to the name part in a moment. <laughs> it means submerged in that, completely covered up in that, buried in that. Now I like where you're going with that. So, so she's suggesting it's not simply doing the ritual, that it is immersing our minds and hearts into the truth about God, uh, opening the heart to God and receiving the Holy Spirit within, that we as a person are immersed into godliness or Christ-likeness. Do you, do you agree or disagree, have trouble with that, feel comfortable with that idea, that baptism is, is not simply a ritual, but it is really the immersing of your heart, mind, soul into, into godliness. Well, the thief on the cross surrendered himself to Christ on the cross. He was never baptized. Well, he was never baptized ritually. Ritually. <laughs> but was he, what you're suggesting is at that moment he was baptized yeah. in his heart and mind with the Spirit of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What does it mean in now now what does it mean in the name of Jesus? You know, I've heard many many uh Christians that go out to evangelize, I've heard them criticize. How were you baptized? People have actually asked me, "How were you baptized?" Were you baptized in the name of Jesus? I said, "What do you mean by that?" Did they say when their hand was held over you in the name of Jesus? If they didn't say in the name of Jesus, then you weren't baptized in the name of Jesus. Have you never had anybody take that approach with you? Yeah, I have. Is that what it means? That they use the right syllables coming out of their mouth as they're doing the ritual? I'll, I'll ask the question I asked a moment ago. Can somebody go through that ritual with the right words being stated and still not have been baptized? Yeah. This is uh, from Signs of the Times, August 21, 1884. But to pray in the name of Jesus is something more than a mere mention of that name at the beginning and ending of a prayer. It is to pray in the mind and spirit of Jesus while we work his works, believe his promises, and rely on his matchless grace. Do you, do you see there's something more than just saying magic words? It is really having a mind that's in unity. So to be baptized in the name of Jesus means to be immersed into his character. His name represents character. That your heart has surrendered to his heart in a love relationship and you let the Spirit come in and immerse you where you have new, new ways of looking at things. You're looking through the lens of what Christ would do. This is your heart's desire. So what is it then? Here, here's, the, here's the big one then. The last phrase we'll look at in this, in this memory verse. What does it mean for the remission of sins? For the remission of sins. So your disease goes into remission. What law lens do you look through? If you look through the, the imperial imposed law lens, what does it mean for the remission of sins? What is it? Well, just as you were coming along, growing up in church, how, what, did it, what was you told that in remission of sins meant? The covering. Covering? Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. Debt paid. Debt paid for sin. 
These are, these are very common things. And I think if you look under that penal model, that, that's what it means. It means that someone else is paying a penalty to the legal authorities for your sins, and you, by accepting the payment, can have sins erased from your ledger in heaven. Yes? Did Jesus have to die for us? Have to... You have to, you, you have to finish the phrase. Did Jesus have to die for us for what? For his need? In other words, was Jesus required? Was there some compulsion on him for him to do it? Okay, here's, why, why did Jesus have to die? Okay, that's a different question. <laughs> okay? If you would have said, would you, did Jesus have to die in order for humans to be saved or to, to be redeemed or to be healed or to be restored, then the answer is yes. But you left that little, little phrase off. So did, was he required to? Not by any authority. Not by any force upon him. There was no require. It was a voluntary thing. But if he wanted to save us, then it was required. Why was that? For the remission of sins. What does the remission of sins mean? If he wanted to save us, then I still remain free beings, free human beings. He had to die. If he wanted to save us and us be free, free beings, he had to die, she said. If you look at design law, you understand that remission of sin is like remission of cancer. And when cancer goes into remission, it means either the cancer cells have been eliminated or they have remitted back to their healthy, non-cancerous state. So the remission of sin means that the defect of fear and selfishness and, and carnal passions and lust and the things that are deviant from God's design in our hearts and characters have either been removed or our characters have been remitted back to Christ-likeness. Now, did Christ have to die? Do it? Yes. So, if you look at the in-Christ motif as far as like we were in Adam when he sinned, so that impacted all of us. We were biologically in him. Right. Yes. So the in Christ motif is when I when I hear people or when I hear the verse say that in the name of Jesus Christ from as, as far as repentance being, I'm sorry as far as being baptized by faith we have to accept that that we were we were part of that that his baptism was the one that that has a salvific effect on our lives not the act that we go under the water that's just a that's just a symbol of what he did for us does that make sense or no. Yeah, so the in Christ motif you're talking about on the second Adam, yes, all humanity, because we're all descended from Adam, so Christ partook of humanity and becomes the second Adam, meaning that he, he, he altered the trajectory that humankind was on. After Adam, humankind was in a terminal trajectory. Christ came in and partook of that terminal condition, and he offers an alternate outcome. We can partake of Christ, and now we can have restoration and healing and eternal life. And how did he do that? In his own humanity, he overcame, by the exercise of his human mind, human brain, he overcame, developing a perfect human character that no other human being had done, restoring God's law, if you want to put it design law, law of love, how things are designed to operate, in the human, human being of Jesus Christ, the, God's law was perfectly established, lived out, solidified, however you want to call it. And the law of the Lord is perfect. What's it do? Reviving the soul. And thus he rises on the third day in a new humanity, perfected by his achievements. Thus the species human was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. As long as we have one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. 
And because of Jesus Christ, the human species will always exist for eternity. There remains a question of how many other specimens will join him because what he's achieved now is available to be applied via the word of the Holy Spirit into your heart and mind that is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We can become partakers of the divine nature. He writes his law on our hearts and minds. We get new hearts and right spirits. So we can actually, via the Holy Spirit, have Christ dwell in us and we can have new hearts and motives and characters. But that's only possible because he first achieved it. Yes, Russell. Well, we sometimes forget that Adam and Eve had a job to do. They weren't arbitrarily created just because God was, you know, bored with His angels. They had, they had, they had a mission to reveal the character and government of God. And they failed in that. So now Christ's job was not only to reveal God, but like you said, to secure the remedy for the defective humanity that Adam and Eve um, had created. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yes. So with Christ's death. Is humanity now on two different tra- trajectories, one for eternity and eternal life and one for etern- eternal death, and we get to choose the trajectory we go on? Did you hear the question? Okay, yes. Uh, d- d- does the Bible say that uh, at the end of time there are two groups, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goat, the faithful woman and the harlot, and, and so forth? You know, there's two groups at the end, two groups of human beings at the end. How could there be two groups? Because one has partaken of Christ and the other has not. That's how there's two groups at the end. Without Christ, there would only have been one group. All humanity would have been in that same group. Another comment? Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say, that's one of the biggest paradigm shifts that has come to me since coming to this class was the way I looked at the crucifixion at Christ's death for us in that now I see the crucifixion as the ultimate revelation of God's true nature and the ultimate revelation of Satan's true nature. So now I am clear enough to try to decide. But it's really interesting how Satan even tries to manipulate that. Yeah, and I want to go past that because you, what you said is absolutely true, but it's not the complete picture. And, this is, and if we stop right there, then, then we get criticism from the penal substitution people that we're teaching moral influence theory. And moral influence theory is that Christ revealed truth about God's character and exposed Satan as a liar in order to win us to trust and we'll reject Satan and boom, that's it. We are morally influenced by the revelation. And then they, and, and they criticize us. We, we don't teach that. We teach that he certainly did reveal truth to win us to trust, but he also accomplished something. He perfected humanity. He destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness. He was tempted in every way just like we are, it says, yet without sin. And in James 1, it says we are tempted when we are drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. And he and his humanity experienced temptation as we do in Gethsemane. He agonized. He had human passions and, and emotions tempting him so much that he felt that he was going to fall down and die. And what were the temptations tempting him to do? Save himself. That's the root of it. Are you going to sacrifice self, give yourself for others? Greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. Or are you going to sacrifice others to protect self? And on the cross, you see it over and over again. They kept coming to him. You saved others. Save yourself. Come down off the cross. Save yourself. Save yourself. And we'll believe in you. This was the temptation to act in self-interest, to use his power selfishly. But he never did. Thus, and, he, and all these temptations, by the way, were going through his human uh, neocortex. Okay. His human circuitry. This was not divine brain processing. This was human brain processing. This. And thus, he surrendered self-sacrificially and developed a perfect human character. His resurrection was the inevitable outcome. It was predictable. Just as, why was it predictable? If I let go of this, can you, how many can predict what will happen? 
Do you have the gift of prophecy? How can you know? It's, it's a future event. How could you possibly know that? Because you understand God's design laws and they're predictable. Okay, And God's law of love is the law of life. It revives restores the soul. And when Christ perfectly carried it out to its ultimate conclusion, he could predict, I will rise again. It's not going to hold me. So why wasn't the moral influence theory, why is that, explain why that is not adequate. If Jesus revealed the true nature of God, revealed the true character of God, is it that, that the capacity to latch onto that, to be changed, is just not in us? So you have, an, and you have uh, endocarditis, bacterial <laughs> infection of your heart, which is a terminal condition without remedy. And there is a, um, a cure that will cure you, an antibiotic that they give it, it will kill the infection and, and save you. But the person who has it is named Mangala, and it's 1939, and you're a Jew. Are you going to let Mangala inject you with something if you have the option? Why wouldn't you? Because there's no trust. And without trust, you won't partake. So now you have a loving, a loving father who happens to be a physician, and you trust him completely, and you have no doubt in his desire to help you, but he has no remedy. Will your trust in your father, who's a physician, get you well if he has no remedy? That's moral influence theory. It wins us to trust, but it leaves us short of remedy. Christ had to actually achieve this outcome as well. Now, um, think about... The sick patient, though, the sick patient who has endocarditis and trusts their father, who's the physician, and let's say the father does have remedy, does the patient who partakes of the remedy have to even know how it came about? How did you make that antibiotic? How's the antibiotic work? Uh, what's it going to do in me? Do they have to know anything, or do they simply have to just trust their physician father and partake of what he provides? And, this is, and, and so ultimately, um, moral influence theory, while it is incomplete for the scholar who wants to explain the details of salvation is a much better theory than penal substitution theory because moral influence theory brings people to trust God. They don't have to know how the remedy was made. They don't have to know how it works in their life. They just have to trust him, open their heart, and he will take what's already been achieved by Christ and work it in your heart. However, penal substitution theory teaches a God who is angry, wrathful, that we must be protected from, that has to be bought off by the blood of his son, a God you really can't trust, and thus you remain fearful of him and you actually remain in a condition uh, where you don't fully open your heart to him. So our model takes it much beyond either one of those models in, in, in my understanding of things. So, yes? Um, just before, when we were talking about the mission, were you talking about the mission in terms of Jesus' mission or humankind's mission? Humankind's mission. So you're like, I think then I might have a problem with the idea of humans were built for, you know, for something that God needed as opposed to just building humans for expanding the circle of love you know, beyond the Trinity, beyond the angels. What could you say about that? First off, I have no problem with God creating new life because he wants to expand the circle of love. Mm. That is not contradictory. Yeah, that's fine. I'm just, I'm but in the, context, in the context of when humanity was created, do we have any inspired insight as to what was happening in the universe at that time? No, we don't have any context. That's why I think it's difficult to say. But we do. Do we? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yes, yes. First off, the, 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 the Genesis account is not a, an account of creation of this planet. Excuse me, creation of the whole universe. It is a, it is a account of creation of, of this planet in the solar system. Job chapter 38 says the sons of God sang together for joy when the foundations of the earth were laid. So there were other intelligent beings in the universe already when this solar system was created. Uh, we also know that Satan was cast out of heaven, uh, Revelation. It was cast out with his angels with him. Uh, we, and, and what was the condition of earth? Void of void. 
Right, right. And if you put that, and then if you value Ellen White's writings, she actually gives more insight. And she says that um, that after Satan's rebellion began in heaven, the Father and the Son moved forward with their plans to create this this earth. Now, when they created this earth, they could create it in lots of different ways. They could create it us to um, not reproduce. They could reproduce by different methods. I mean, there, there was an infinite number of possibilities how they designed this species. But in the context of a war over God's trustworthiness, this new species was given something that, as far as we know, no other intelligences have. The power to procreate. We can create beings in our own image. And dominion. We had other beings of a lesser order that we were to rule and govern. And then 1 Corinthians 4, 9 says that this world is a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. And there's a context. We're a lesson book for angels to look into. Hebrew says that, that angels long to look into this stuff. And so I think there's this idea that we were created with the purpose to reveal in perfect godly love, and what would it say if Adam and Eve would have come together and given of themselves in love in a world without sin, because God told them to be fruitful and multiply before sin, and if they would have done it and stayed faithful, what would have been revealed? Would they have had children to abuse and enslave and, and, and dominate? Or would they have constantly given of themselves to protect their kids and do what's good for them? And the universe would then see, oh, this, is, this whole planet, all the things we talk about in nature, everything on this planet, including how the family was to operate, was an ev- evidence of God's character of love. And that's why Paul in Romans 1.20 says God's divine nature is seen in what he has made. And so I think this planet was an answer to those things. And then the Sabbath on top of that was a further answer. But it's in, the, it's in the DVD set out there, and I encourage you to get the, the God in your church one and listen to the second DVD where I actually walk through that whole progression. So, there was another comment somewhere? Yeah, Tim. I'm curious, following up on the question of Jesus having to die for our salvation, it, does it depend on how you view it? Because through the penal substitution model, if the Jewish nation had accepted Jesus and there was no push to have him crucified, would he then, through the penal substitution model, had to be killed by somebody? Yes. Uh, when I've talked to penal substitution theologians about that and asked them that question, the answer typically given, because it's hypothetical, and they said it's just hypothetical, um, and so it didn't happen, we, we really don't know, but the answer typically given is he would have been gone to the, to the sanctuary and the, pre, the priest would have killed him and sacrificed him and taken his blood into the temple. Yeah. The, the, this payment had to be made to, to the offending deity in, in order to... Uh, pay for the sins. So they, this is what the answer. Yes. So what do you say to someone for whom the penal substitution to say my sins are covered, that's all I need to know, I don't want to hear anything else, what do you say to that person? Well, if they say I don't want to hear anything else, I don't say anything. Well, <laughs> no, what I mean is they don't think they need to hear anything else. They just say that's enough, that's all I need. Um. Well, I, I begin to ask questions. I, I don't necessarily, if that's their issue, I don't necessarily go directly at that issue. What I would do is I would back up and start, how do you understand God's law? And I would try to show them the law of love, law of liberty, um, God's methods and how they work and apply. Then I would bring maybe some parables of Christ into bear. And, and then I would start drawing some cognitive dissonance on how their model doesn't actually fit with what, how reality works. And, and, and it depends on their ability to tolerate cognitive dissonance. And if they can't, and many people can't, they're very, they're very insecure and they live in t- total fear and they have a little box that they've created for their mind 
and their mind feels safe in their box. It's like a child in the bedroom with a blanket over their head. Yeah, they feel safe. Don't take my blanket away. And, and they don't want their little box taken away. Okay, and so some people just will not allow new ideas to come in or penetrate because it scares them. Others have other motives. They've created a box and they've painted their name on the box. And they've promoted this box as the box everyone should wear. And they won't come out of their box because their name's on it and their pride and their ego won't allow them to come out of the box. And I've, I've run into those kind as well. But there are a lot of sincere people who really who were brought up that way. And that's the way they, they see no problem with the way they've been brought up. And as long as Christ, you know, did something for them that saves them, they're happy with that. That's right. And, and that's why I understand Revelation chapter 7, 1 through 3 says, The angel came from the east town, the angels at the four corners holding back the four winds of strife to hold, hold, hold until an event happens, until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. And the servants of God are in Bible, if you do the Bible extrapolation, are his spokespersons, the prophets, the people who speak the truth about him. Those are, those. And when, once that group is sealed or settled that they can't be moved, then a, the four winds are loosened. And a terrible calamity has been coming upon the earth. And the, the, this 144,000 symbolic number, not a literal number, of people who are already settled begin giving the witness of what's really happening because people are now asking the question. This is why the, the, the four winds are loosed and troubles happen because people like you just described, their answers will not work when the four winds are loosened. They need a better answer. And then we give our witness and give the better answer. Here's what's really happening in reality. And it says in the, later in Revelation 7 that a great multitude from every nation, tribe, and people will be saved. And it's saved in the context of the witness that we give. And I think God is uh, waiting for that group of people to have a group of people worldwide settled into reality about his, his character, his kingdom, his universe, how, how things actually work, so that then the four winds loose troubles happen people ask what's going on and if you and if and if we just go i don't know i don't know god's god's sovereign i don't know he'll take care of it well then we have nothing to say yes back somewhere else yes Um, i don't disagree with what linda said except that you know our job now is to to reveal the nature of god and the people that have closed their minds and have this substitution theory aren't representing god's character now can i let me go ahead and finish uh, and you know that, and that I think misses the point is is that we've got to reveal God's character to people around us so that they can they can accept what the facts really are. So let me clarify because I want to. I said this in the uh, lecture, um, the seven levels of moral decision making, growing up in Christ. Level five is when we come to actually love other people more than self. This is uh, the first level where we turn the focus away from self toward, towards God and others. There are many people that operate at level five. That's where they function. They really do love people. They love God and they love people. But if they're given a Bible quiz, the answer they give on a Bible quiz is penal substitutionary. They they've actually have a disconnect. They don't know how it works, but they do know that they resonate. Their heart resonates with love, and they love people. And you'll see these good Christian loving people, but they can't give a good Bible answer for why it's that way. Or good atheistic loving people. Or good atheistic loving people. Why do you think Jesus says you must come like a child? Though? Like a child doesn't come with a huge book of references. He comes just with a loving heart. Isn't that enough? Really? And that's what I say in the lecture at level five. That's be like a little child to trust and love. You don't have to give right answers. It's about right character. And right character is this character of love. But that's level five, level of obedience. Level one through four is still all self-referenced. It's all about 
Avoiding punishment, getting reward, level one. Level two, uh, marketplace exchange, making a deal. Level three, having approval of the peers, not being rejected by your group of peers around you, the, the peer pressure acceptance. And level four, law and order, obeying the rules. And all of those levels are focused on self and what self can get out of it. Level five is when we actually love God and others more than self. And we don't have to have great cognitive understanding. We have to have emotional um, willingness to, to love others more than self, which is an emotional understanding. I think sometimes it's a difficult thing because a child is quite selfish. All they, have, all they do is depend on you know, the father, so to speak. So it's... No, that's not... That's, the children come into the world egocentric and they're very needy. But I can tell you my, uh, my three-year-old granddaughter, when uh, she didn't get her way, she started to cry. And I started to cry with her. Mock crying, really. Okay? And I started, as soon as I did, she stopped crying and came over to hug me. <laughs> Immediately. She was very concerned. So there is this aspect of love there as well. But yes, and this is... The most important thing is the reliance, even, you know, because we have this condition which won't be fully, like, fully restored until the end. So we've got this kind of... I think number one is the, the weight on our father, like, depending on them. Number two, like, we're going to have the selfishness, but of course it's going to be lessened after we've accepted him. But I like what you said because this is like a child's trust in our heavenly father. It's like a child trusts their parents if they have healthy, loving parents. Okay, not abusive parents. The child, uh, small children, their trust is implicit. I mean, they, they don't really question. If mommy says, there's a present in the closet, go get it, the child doesn't go, I wonder if mom's playing a trick on me. I wonder if it's really going to be there. And they don't question. It's boom, they're already jumping up and down with joy on their way to the, oh, I'm so thank you, thank you, thank you. They haven't even got the present yet. Okay? Those who live by, this is what, what Hebrews is talking about, that faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When God promises us the heavenly presence, eternal life, mansions in heaven, crowns of glory, these are the presents in the closet. When we trust him like a child, we're already joyful because that's all certain for us. And we're also called to grow up into adulthood. Yes, we are. Uh, forget that either. So, boy, we, we're... <laughs> This is good. This is good stuff. It's a good discussion today. I'm not, I'm not unhappy about that. It's just like, you know, I have so much to say. <laughs> so it's really good. I really appreciate all the comments, and I want you to keep them up. Um, in the uh, lesson, though, it, it talks about um, second paragraph. It says, uh, Peter worked to bring about an integrated church, uniting Gentiles co- converts who were unaware of the finer points of Jewish culture and Jewish converts who, whose customs tended to take on the character of divine absolutes. Like all pioneer missionaries, Peter had to discriminate between unchangeable divine absolutes and those practices that are cultural and relative and, and relative and of no important consequence. So I think it's a good question. What is a divine absolute and what is a cult, cultural ritual or relevant, which is ultimately irrelevant? Any any thoughts on that? So the absolute is love God with all your heart and neighbors yourself. She says, Love God with all your heart, neighbors yourself is an absolute. So covering the head while in church and, and or praying? You know, this is something in the New Testament. How about women speaking in church? How about ordination of men and women? Notice I say ordination of men and women. Divine absolute or a cultural thing? It's cultural. It comes out of actually um, a, an institutional church system. It's not in the New Testament. There wasn't ordination of an elite clergy in the New Testament. That is handed down to us from the systemized church. It's about power and control. It's 
It's not about loving others more than self. It's about hoarding power in a sect of of elite persons who have a special um, inbred brotherhood that they can then hoard and control. That's what the, the, the ordination process was about. But it's not New Testament. That's, uh, what about partaking of communion? Ceremony, the ceremony. Is that divine absolute or cultural? Cultural. It's just symbolic. The ceremony. Not, what about what the ceremony represents? That's a divine absolute because the bread represents the word of God and the blood represents the character of Christ and you must partake of the truth of God and the character of Christ. So that's a divine absolute. But the ceremony itself, not an absolute. In fact, can you do the ceremony and not actually partake of Christ at all? Yeah, people do the ceremony all the time who don't partake of Christ. Wasn't Peter the one who put his stomach to lock to the Gentiles? Yes, Paul told him. Right. Yeah. So how about this as a divine absolute? And I'm not going to read it because it's, it's, we're, we're on time, but Matthew 25, 32 through 40, where the king comes and, uh, and separates the sheep from the goats and takes them in and says, Come, who blessed my father, because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was naked and you clothed me and I so forth and so on. Divine absolute? Absolutely. It's loving other people. This is the law of love in action. This is what it looks like to love, to care for others, to give of yourself. What about this one? I will read this one, Matthew 5, 38 through 45. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him also the other. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and do not return and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What do you hear and hear? Some culture, some divine absolute. Oh, she heard some culture and some divine absolute. Which was the cultural part? If somebody wants to borrow from you, don't turn them away. Any other thoughts on that? Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. This is cultural. He's trying to move them from level. But wait a second. Who, who gave him that directive, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. God's given cultural directives? Yep. Does God give directives that are not divine absolutes? But if God said it, I believe it. That, that if God said it, it must be an absolute, right? He doesn't give non-absolutes, does he? Who gave him all the instructions, the whole Levitical law? Are those necessary for salvation? They're not even necessary for salvation for the Jewish people at the time of the Old Testament. Your tool. Tim, doesn't the instruction that a parent gives a child different than maybe the conversation they'll have with an adult child? Or? Absolutely. Well, we hope so anyway. Well, maybe that's what, what we're talking about here, is that God was dealing with different... There's so, so many cultural things. They deal in the New Testament with one of them, circumcision. Given to Abraham, the Jews. And they were quite, do you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian? The clear answer from the New Testament church was no. But God gave him a directive. It was a clear directive, but it was a cultural directive. Lots of them. So we have to think through which directives from God are divine absolutes and which are cultural, not absolute. I'm going to tell you it all. If you get confused, 
Think through which law lens are you asking for? Which law lens? Am I looking at rules or am I looking at design protocol? And then is it for me to avoid some consequence or is it be, uh, some punishment, some, some trouble with the, with the rule maker? Or is it important in my character development? Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, Jesus' last words before his ascension were a missionary, of a missionary nature. And they quote Acts 1.8. Quote, Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Here again we see the mandate to spread the gospel into all the world. I heard that and I read that and I had to ask you a question. Do you hear mandate? What does the word mandate mean? An obligation? An order? Um, You know, it often means an authoritative order or command. A mandate. What's interesting, they left out the, the, the starting phrase of that verse. If you go to your Bible, there's a phrase missing in, in Acts 1.8 from the quarterly. Here's, here's the whole statement from whole verse, Acts 1.8. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be filled with power and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Does that change at all how we hear that? Yes. Yeah, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you can't help but do it. There you go. So is this a mandate, or is this in some ways a prophecy, a prediction? Yes, this is what's going to happen. He's telling what's going to happen. He's not commanding and mandating it. I, I, I just, what is the does it make a difference to you if you hear God has given us a mandate, this is what we must do, versus God has described what will happen when the Holy Spirit comes upon us? Does it make a difference in how you relate to God? Yeah, it speaks about God's character. Yeah, and, it, and in your heart, does it make a difference how you feel towards him? It makes a difference what message you will take as well. It's, uh, so, how about when we think about the Ten Commandments? Do you hear a mandate? Or do you hear a description of what you will be like when the Lord comes into your heart? When the Lord's in your heart, you won't have any other gods. You won't take his name in vain. You'll remember the Sabbath. You won't lie, cheat, steal, and all these other things. Yes. Then where did the name commandments come from? Should it be the Ten Promises instead? This is what you will be instead of the commandments? That's just something that occurred in my brain. That I-, I like that, actually, the Ten Promises. <laughs> I really like that. Well, if you love me, keep my commandments is not so much a mandate as it is a promise. Yes. If you love me, this is what your life will be like. If a doctor had a patient with pneumonia and said to them, I give you this mandate, you are not to cough anymore. <laughs> Is that the same thing as saying to the patient, when the antibiotics finish their work in you, you will not cough anymore? Is that the same thing? No, when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit makes a change in you and all these consequences happen. It's a much different experience. There's no, see, this mandate is we've got this pressure. We've got this work. We are burdened. What, what if we don't do it? What if we fail? What if we come up short? It's not what if we don't. It's as unrealistic as telling the pneumonia guy not to call. Exactly. Second paragraph states, The Great Commission found, in it, found its first fulfillment on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit had its aim, as its aim, the evangel, evangelization of the world. Absolutely right. Question, but what was the world to be evangelized about. Well, what's the message that goes to the world when we have accepted the imposed law? We're sinners, criminals, we're guilty. 
in, in the heavenly court, sentenced to an eternal death. But God loved us too much, so he sent his son and punished Jesus in our place. And if you accept the payment of Jesus' blood to, to, uh, that he's made to the Father on your behalf, you can be declared legally righteous. Or, God is not like you've made... God, or this is the message. This was a goal. God is not like what you've been taught. God is not like the Baals. God is not a God who requires appeasement. God is not a God who has to be paid off. God is like Jesus who, who gives constantly of himself for your welfare, seeking to heal and to restore. And yes, it's true that you are out of harmony with the design, but Jesus came to put you back in harmony with the design and reconcile you to your Father in heaven. Different message? Story of Cornelius on Monday's lesson uh, asked the question, can a Gentile become a Christian without first becoming a Jew? That was the question that the Christian church was, was dealing with. Can, can a, a, a Gentile become a Christian without first becoming a Jew? Do we have a similar question today? Can a person be saved without being a member of our denomination? Is that ever a question we have to deal with? <laughs> can a person be saved without baptism ceremony in the name of Jesus? Can a person be saved without becoming a Christian? Can a person be saved who tells you they reject Christianity? Yes. Yes. Which law lens are you answering this through? I mean, it's really what it comes down to. Which law lens? If it's a legal system and a payment in your behalf, uh, and you must have your, your, your payment made, and you can't make the payment, then if you reject the payment, you can't be saved. No. This is why it goes out. You must be baptized in the name of Jesus, because if you don't do it, he's the only one who's paid your price, and if you don't accept that payment, then God will have to kill you, or torture you in hell for all eternity. I hear this on the radio. Listen to Moody Radio. It's on Moody Radio all the time. Absolutely. Every day. Every day. If you look through design law, you realize that life exists only in harmony with God, who created all, all the universe to operate in harmony with him, and that deviations from the design are terminal. They're actually damaging to the deviant, and that God sent Christ to achieve remedy, and those who trust him, the Holy Spirit takes what Christ achieves and reproduces it in us, thus we are brought back into harmony with God. Such transformation cannot be, and let me make this clear, such transformation cannot be achieved by human effort. It cannot be accomplished by religious ritual. It cannot be accomplished by psychotherapy or human psychological treatments. It can only be accomplished by God taking the victory Christ has made, has achieved, and make it real in your heart. And that's when we're one to trust and we open our heart to him. I think there's a big question maybe to be thought about regarding at what point has Christ changed your life entirely? Because then we have justification and sanctification. We have the thief on the cross all of a sudden changing his perspective towards God. We have, you know, there's people who, who say the payment is paid are relieved because they know they're not perfect. So is there any, any question in here about what justification and sanctification is? Any question? She threw those words out. Everybody know what they mean? I heard somebody mumble it. Justification is setting right or making right, and sanctification is keeping right or growing in rightness. And what is it that's wrong that needs setting right? When you justify the margins on your word processor, you take what's out of harmony or out of line, you put it in line. You set it, in the, to the, you set it right. Okay? So justification is the process of being set right. Now, what's wrong that needs setting right? Penal, penal view? Your record. Your record hasn't been paid. It has, to be, it has to have a blood payment. It has a stamp next to it. No. What's wrong is our own heart conditions. We are distrustful of God. We're selfish. And our hearts, natural 
heart, Romans, is enmity to God. We're against him. That's our state of, our natural state of being from Adam. And thus, when we're one to trust, we, we're not against him anymore. We trust him. Our heart has been set right with God again. We trust him. Justification, we've been set right. So that's why it says when Abraham trusted God, and it was after he trusted God, meaning after his distrust was removed and trust was established, then he was recognized as righteous or set right or justified. And then after we're in a trust relationship with God, we're justified, we trust him again, then we grow in rightness or sanctification. Yes? The joke is that believing that God needs to be appeased or that there needs to be a legal payment for our sin, that is enmity. Yeah, yeah. Way in the back. Uh, I have an online comment that in Numbers 14, God forgave the Israelites without them changing their thinking or even asking for forgiveness. And so the, the question of forgiveness then comes up. How do we understand forgiveness? It's very murky, actually. Forgiveness can mean the extending of no longer holding it against you from the person who's been offended. I forgive you. And this is what it often means. It can also mean legal pardon for some. Some hear it this way. Uh, your, your, your criminal act and the demand for punishment has been pardoned. You're forgiven. But it can also, in certain contexts, mean the entire process of reconciliation where we are put back in harmony with God. Not only are we forgiven, but we then partake or participate in the forgiveness. That changes us. When we experience God's forgiveness in our heart, we are one to trust and we open our heart and trust. Then he transforms us. So Christ on the cross forgave those who put him there, but that they accept that forgiveness and be one to trust by it. So while they're forgiven, listen, this is really cool. While those guys were forgiven, they remain unforgiven. Do you all get that? They are forgiven, but they remain unforgiven. Because they're forgiven by God, but they didn't participate in it, so their state of being remains in an unforgiven state. And it wasn't what he chose at that moment. It was who he always was. That's right. God has always been forgiving. God God sent Christ because he forgave us already. He didn't have to have Christ die to forgive us. But this idea of forgiveness, it's also, in the penal view, it's very contradictory. If if you owe me $10,000 and you can't pay it, you owe me a debt. We're, you're indebted to me. Okay, the old debt word there. And, uh, and you can't pay it. And your brother comes along and pays the entire thing for you. And I receive payment. And I take the payment. And now I erase your debt. What happens when I look to you and now say, now that I've received full payment for your debt, I forgive you your debt. How's that work for people in here? Because that's what penal substitution teaches. That God forgives us our debt, but he only forgives us our debt after he's been paid for it by Jesus. Who's paid our debt? It's so contradictory and convoluted. Um, Let's move on um, to the point in the lesson, which was the question of, can somebody be saved? No, I don't want to confuse too much. Okay, so we've already established in here, humanity and individuals cannot be saved without Jesus Christ. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It cannot be saved. However... Does a person, can a person who rejects Christianity even say, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus, still be saved? Yes. Can a person who says, I don't believe in modern medicine, benefit from taking modern medicine? Yes. A person who says, I don't believe in antibiotics, who receives antibiotics, still be blessed or healed from those antibiotics, even though they don't believe in them. 
Okay? So when somebody says they don't believe in Christ or they don't believe in Christianity, say, tell me about the Christianity you rejected. Tell me about the Christ you rejected. And they've rejected some imperialistic, legalistic, penal, substitutionary, angry, wrathful God who's going to burn you in hell if you don't accept his payment. And they rejected that. You should say, good for you, because I don't believe in him either. You don't believe in that Christ any more than they do. And so Paul says in Romans, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. What is he saying? These people have never had scripture, never had the gospel brought to them, but do by nature what the law requires, which is loving God and others more than self, show that the law has been written in their hearts. How can this happen? Because early in Romans 1, he said, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made. God's law of love is in nature. And they've responded to the working of the Spirit in nature, and they have loved God's methods. They have received through the Holy Spirit a new heart and right spirit achieved by Christ, so they're still saved by Christ, even though they don't even know it. And, and there's so much evidence for this. Um, there's a couple of quotes. Um, maybe I should, should read one really quick. Um, this is out of uh, Desire of Ages 638. Those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have known little of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Notice, cherished his principles. That's design law. Cherished his design law. Uh, through the influence of the divine spirit, there's the Holy Spirit working, they have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at the peril of their own lives. Self-sacrificial giving. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly. Those who... Those to whom the light has never been brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things the law required, which is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as children of God. But that only still receiving Christ, even though they don't know Christ. And there's other quotes like that. I want to jump in to... Um, This quote, this is out of General Conference Daily Bulletin, March 2, 1897. And the question is, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? Somebody asked you that. Are you saved? What does it mean? To repent. This is, um, in assuming human nature, and of course the traditional answer when people in the street ask you are you saved they're asking have you accept the blood payment of Jesus to your behalf all sins past present and future related upon Christ and the cross punished by the father in his stead when you accept his blood it covers you all past present and future you're saved and once saved you can't be lost because all things are paid no no whatever you do in the future God's foreknowledge knew that put it on Christ already punished it for you so you've accepted that it's accepted for all future sins you're, you're good this is evangelical Christianity Tim, you mentioned um, one, love and trust. So Christ wins my love and trust. And then there's the remedy where I'm remission of sins. But when do I get my salvation card? Yeah, your salvation card. What is a salvation card? So what does it mean to be saved? It's the root of salve, for example. In medical, salve is meant to heal. That's right. You have been healed. So when you run in the emergency room bitten by a snake, you say... 
please forgive me or please save me? I think that for me, the answer would be at justification. Which is? I'd a turning around or justifying just. That, that is that is that is the key. I mean, it is. It's when the heart in distrust to God comes and surrenders and trusts to Him. The person has left the path of death and has entered the path of life. Regardless of how long down that path they go in a trust relationship with God, they're in a saved condition. They're in the process I've of healing. I always hate that question because to me, it's not applicable. So listen to this quote about the question of being saved. What does it mean? In assuming human nature that he might reach to the very depths of human woe and misery and lift man up, Christ has shown what estimate he places upon the human race. In this work, everything was at stake. Satan claimed to be the lawful owner of the fallen race. Notice who makes legal claims. If you actually read historically, you will find that Satan always comes with legal claims. The law, the law, the law. That's what he does. Okay? the lawful owner of the fallen race. And with what persistent effort did he seek to overthrow Christ through his subtlety? What, what was so subtle? What did he do subtle? I'll tell you the subtlety. The subtlety was in exchanging God's design law for a system of imposed rules that he must enforce in the minds of men so they see that God's law operates like a system that created beings make. And that is so subtle because almost the whole world has bought into this idea. Justice requires. See, this is justice. Justice requires that, we, that sin must be punished and miscarries sin to, and, and the punishment must be paid. This is just. And, and people, it's so subtle, they can't even see the lie right before them. Keep on with the quote. It was only by the most desperate conflict with the powers of Satan that Christ could accomplish his purpose. I'm, I'm stopping mid-sentence because the next phrase tells you the purpose. What do you think this author says is the purpose? To accomplish his purpose to regain legal rights that Satan had, had, had claimed to pay legal payments that needed to be paid. No, there's, to, to accomplish his purpose of restoring the almost obliterated image of God in man and place his own signature upon his forehead. It's restoration, it's healing, it's putting the character of God back in the species human, which is what he accomplished. Here's another one. Signs of the Times, August 26, 1897. In his humanity, notice, human brain, Christ lived a perfect life, thus elevating humanity in the scale of moral worth with God. What's that mean? In the human brain, he perfected human character and restored it back to the high state it was originally designed to be. With his human arm, Christ lays hold of man, while with his divine arm, he grasps the throne of the infinite. Thus, he imbues man with his own spiritual nature and lifts him to his side to be cherished and loved as the father loves his son. What does imbues mean? Imbues is more than give. Incorporates and stills. Yes, infills, incorporates, instills, pours into. So Romans 5, 5, it says, when we trust him, we open the heart and God pours his love into our hearts. He takes his righteousness and pours it into us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is what the New Testament is actually teaching. We get new hearts and right spirits, new motives, new character. Yes, it almost sounded like the creation of Eve there because imbuing and then also by his side were put together. Well, we, we were created to be a, what's the word? Demonstration project. No, no, no. It was like partner, a partner, a, a, friend, a friend of God. Humanity was created to be friends with God. Cooperating friends with God. Cooperating friends with God. That's our purpose, to be created, to be that. Yeah. So we have trouble with something called perfection because we're told, when most of us think, oh, we'll never be perfect till heaven, blah, 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 and yet we're told 
Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, let's talk about that perfect. Perfection. Perfection through the imposed law looks like what? Perfect behavior. And this is why when you use the word perfection, there's a cringe through the crowd, and you're a perfectionist, you're a perfectionist, because they're looking through the imposed law. When you look design law, now there's several elements to this word in design law. Number one, if you're sick and you go to the doctor, do you say, doc, I want to be 80% well? Or do you want to be perfectly healed? And does perfect healing put the pressure on you or the doctor and the efficacy of his remedy? Yes, the perfect healing is on God. He's the one who's achieved perfect healing in Christ, and we are partakers, partakers of the divine, not developers of the divine remedy. We are partakers. So perfection means that, and then what does it look like? In biblical context, it looks like maturity, growing up, becoming level seven friends of God that love God and others more than self, that understand his design and, and participate in his purposes. And thus it means maturity, self-sacrificial love, willing to give your life for others. Yes? It was some years ago I remember thinking, so what does a sanctified person look like by the time they're 90? And I looked around and I didn't really see anybody I wanted to emulate, you know? (laughs) And, And so, but then coming with your, I can't think of the word, but anyway, the different lens, and understanding for me what justification and sanctification is. Justification is the turning around and the being, and be, but sanctification is not growing in our behavior and attitude. It, it's a, it's like a marriage. I, it's the beginning of my growing in my relationship with God, which will not stop when I die. Absolutely. Continue to grow and grow and grow. Your love just grows, and then your behavior and attitude change. But it's, it's, the sanctification is the relationship growth, and that's forever. Yep, yep, absolutely transformational. So my point is, Christianity is real. It is a real transformation of heart motives, thought processes, which result ultimately in behavioral living your life differently. But those are only the fruits or the consequences, just like the stopping of the coughing is what happens when you take your antibiotics. It's not the work that you work to achieve. It's the outcome of what happens when you actually experience God in the way he wants you to experience him. And the linchpin, the, the, the corner, uh, the, the thing it all hinges upon is what view of God do you hold? And what view of God do you hold is connected directly to what view of God's law do you hold? And this is why it, the final battle will be over what it started with in heaven. How do you view God's law? Imposed rules, then he's a dictator who will punish, or design protocols, and he's the creator who loves you and will heal. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are exactly as Jesus revealed you to be. And you have won us to trust. We open our hearts to you now. We ask that the Spirit will take all that Christ has achieved for us that we could never achieve for ourselves and pour, imbue us with the, with the character of Christ. New heart motives, new desires, new thought processes. And empower us as we decide and choose to follow those new motives and new desires to, to sustain us in those courses of action and provide for our ability to do so. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.